Hello, everybody. Labor Know Your Rights is brought to you by the National League of Justice and Security Professionals, where the members come first. We are now a proud member of Labor Radio Network. Looking for a radio program or podcasts on the labor movement? This is the network to find it. Simply go to www.laborradionetwork.org. Schneiderman declared that women wage earners need not accept any wage cuts if they stand together like men for a single day. Women's work, she went on, was just as valuable as men's. It must be compensated as highly and would be if only women organized. Then she lashed out at the idea of always being a poor working girl as nonsense. There is no reason why a working girl should be poor. Men bakers, for instance, who are organized, get good wages. Girls working in such a prosperous business as the candy industry get starvation wages because they are not organized. I want to say to the women in the District of Columbia, if they would organize, they would not only get the $16.50 a week formally guaranteed to them by law, but more. However, the only concrete action taken by the conference was the appointment of a national committee representing the AFL and the two leading women's organizations to work out a comprehensive trade union program to combat the wage slashing that already is threatening a million women's wage earners in the United States as a result of the Supreme Court decision. By the end of 1923, it was estimated that women's wages in at least five of the states that had had minimum wage laws been reduced by one-third. The continuing conflict between the WTUL and the NWP over protective legislation for women reached a climax in January 1926 when the Women's Bureau of the United States Department of Labor sponsored a women's industrial conference in Washington. At the first session, the proceeding was almost disrupted by the conflict over protective legislation. 300 women were mobilized for a march to the White House where they left a petition contending they were placed at a disadvantage in competing with men in the industrial world by the so-called welfare laws for women. With the petition, the National Women's Party captured the headlines, but the proponents of protective legislation struck back immediately. 27 trade union women attending the conference presented Coolidge with a counter-petition expressing their full support for protective legislation of women. The Women's Bureau agents investigated the effects of the labor laws involving 669,000 women workers in 11 states. Their extensively researched study concluded that, with few exceptions, labor laws did not constitute a handicap to women's economic advances. While all this was going on, a major battle was shaping up in New York State. For several years, the Joint Legislative Conference, which had been established in 1919 to coordinate efforts for new protective legislation 
and which was led and financed by WTUL, had lobbied actively for a 48-hour law with the encouragement of Governor Alfred Smith, but every time the lobbyists traveled to Albany to plead for the passage of the bill, they found that their opposition included not only manufacturers, especially cannery owners, but also spokespersons for the National Women's Party and the Women's League for Equal Opportunity. As a result, the bill consistently failed to pass. Finally, in 1926, the Mastic Shock Bill gained sufficient support from Republicans and Democrats in both houses to ensure passage. The watered-down proposal applying to women in factories and mercantile establishments permitted women in these establishments to work up to 10 hours a day as long as they did not exceed 48 hours in one week, except that they could work up to 54 hours a week for 10 weeks of a calendar year. Despite the limitations of the proposed law, the measure provided a spirited contest. On February 16, 1926, a delegation of workers led by Mary Murray of the National Women's Party Industrial Council called on Governor Smith to voice opposition to the proposed law. A petition signed by 897 working women from all parts of New York State. The women favoring the 48-hour, led by Mary Dreyer, chairperson of the Joint Legislative Conference, visited legislators and urged them not to accept statements made against the bill as representing the views of working women. They distributed copies of a letter by Mary Bonanno of the Dressmakers Union, Local 89, in which she answered the argument raised in the petition that women would lose their jobs and be replaced by men if the bill was passed. This time, the WTUL and its allies were successful. The New York State Legislature passed the Mastic Shonk 48-hour bill, and Governor Smith swiftly signed it into law. On March 26, 1927, the New York WTUL celebrated the only victory it had scored thus far in the decade of the 1920s on the legislative front. But so much of the League's funds had been devoted to fighting the Equal Rights Amendment and safeguarding protective legislation that little remained for organizational activities. In fact, the combination of these outlays with the Reduction in contributions from its allies resulted in deficits in 1924, 1925, and 1926. To reduce expenditures that only two chapters out of 12 employed organizers, that only three even had budgets, and that league membership had declined to its lowest point. It would be illuminating to know, Chrisman declared, how great a contribution to the labor movement is represented in the above summary. Not very much if one is to judge by the statistics. The 1930 census revealed 11 million women in industry, that of some perhaps 250,000 were in trade unions, half of these in the garment industry. Of 471,000 female textile workers, only 20,000 were in unions in 1927. Of 72,000 women employed in iron and steel, only 105 were organized. 
Overall, concludes William Chafee, the labor movement had reached one out of every 34 females, and nearly all of them were white. In 1925, a study of the unionization of office workers pointed out there is little in the records of the AFL convention from 1905 to the present to indicate aggressive action by the Federation for the organization of this group of workers. The files of the American Federalists from 1907 to 1924 contain no articles specifically on the problem of organizing this group. The only AFL union of office workers in 1925 was the Bookkeepers, Stenographers, and Accountants Union with a total membership of 1,654 in 29 locals. Most of the members worked in offices of unions affiliated with the AFL. The situation had not changed by the end of the decade. Economist Teresa Wolfson put the blame for this situation on the hostility of the AFL and its member unions to women workers. The evidence was there. Thus, while the entire August 1929 issue of the American Federationist was dedicated to women, with the editorial stressing the principle that legislation was no substitute for union protection, leading AFL organizers were still asserting publicly that it would take from 25 to 50 years before a campaign to unionize the working women would even begin. Question arose, must millions of exploited women remain miserably underpaid and overworked until the AFL gets around to them in 25 to 50 years? And will the American labor movement become aware of the necessity of organizing these women? Neither the WTUL nor the AFL appeared to have any answers, but a movement did exist which offered an answer. Under the leadership of William Foster, the Trade Union Education League, TUEL, was organized in the early 1920s. The TUEL united communists and non-communists to campaign within the trade unions for amalgamation of craft unions into industrial unions. Organization of the unorganized workers with special attention to women and blacks, a labor party, and a policy of recognition of and peaceful relations with Soviet Russia. While not without limitations in their approach to the issue, the communists were without question the most ardent proponents of sexual and racial equality in the labor movement. Communist women working in the TUEL won the support of many women who were not communists, and together they fought the male-dominated union bureaucracies in the ILGWU, the International Fur Workers Union, and the Amalgamated Clothing Workers. They were active in the drive to organize the unorganized textile workers in Pasiak, New Bedford, and Paul River. On the false charge that the TUEL was a dual union, a policy of expulsion of individual trade unionists, and whole unions got underway. This expulsion policy compelled the TUEL to become the Trade Union League, JUUL, which now sought to achieve organization of the unorganized through independent industrial unions. The first of these industrial unions was the National Textile Workers Union, organized by 250 delegates, 50 of them were women, who met in New York City on September 22nd and 23rd, 1928. 
After World War I came a depression in which women workers, particularly black women, were hard hit by unemployment. By mid-1923, it was over. Soon, large numbers of the American people were engaged in speculation on a scale never seen before. Then, in October 1929, the break in the stock market precipitated the deepest and most prolonged depression in American history. President Herbert Hoover was confident that the stock market crash of Tuesday, October 29, 1929, was merely a temporary setback and that economic vitality would be quickly restored through the voluntary cooperation of businessmen. Meanwhile, unemployment rose from 3 million in 1930 to about 15 million, some say 17 million. In 1933, wages dropped 45%, and the number of the population living at or below the substance level rose from 40% in 1929. The unemployment rate for women was 4.7% and for men 7.1%, according to the April 1930 census. As the depression deepened, it became worse for women. In 1931, 1932, and again in 1933, the Women's Bureau of the U.S. Department of Labor insisted that unemployment among women was more widespread than among young male workers and was increasing at a more rapid rate in many industries. In 1933, the Women's Bureau estimated that at least a million women were without jobs. State and city surveys supported these conclusions. The New York State Department of Labor reported in 1933 that 3 out of 10 women workers were jobless. The same proportion was reported in Cleveland, in Atlanta. Half of all the jobless in the winter of 1932 were women. President A. Lawrence Howe of Harvard admitted that he had fired scrub women earning $3.54 an hour and replaced them with men at $3.74 an hour rather than pay the women the 24 cents more an hour specified by the Massachusetts Minimum Wage Commission as legal pay for that class of work. At its 1931 convention, the AFL came up with a nine-point program on unemployment, urging the preference of employment to those upon whom family or dependency rests. Married women in the labor force were the target of the sharpest male attacks, accused selfishly choosing to work for pin money or for personal satisfaction instead of devoting themselves to their designated full-time role as housewives and mothers. Section 213 of the 1932 Federal Economy Act, for example, required that one person resign if both husband and wife worked for the federal government. 75% of the spouses who did resign were women. Dozens of state legislatures received bills openly discriminating against married women. Most of them tried to reduce unemployment by removing married women from jobs controlled by the state and making these positions available to single women and to men married or single. Many of these bills did not pass and state supreme courts ruled other constitutional. However, executive orders restricted state employment of married women in Alabama, Idaho, Indiana, Pennsylvania, and Rhode Island. The Women's Bureau, the Women's Trade Union League, the League of Women's Voters, the National Women's Party, and the Business and Professional Women's Clubs argued that families depended on married women to work and insisted that all women had a right to work. Joining the opposition was the Communist Party of the United States. 
Why are communists opposed to dismissing married women from jobs in order to make room for the unemployed heads of families? Was one of the questions submitted to the Daily Worker. The answer went in part, communists are opposed to driving married women out of industry because this is a reactionary move, not only against women, but against the entire working class. It is an attempt on the part of the capitalists to lower the living standards of the workers. Since the men who replace the married women on the latter's wages, which are far below those of working men. The spread of this practice will thus depress the wage scales of all workers in these lowered wages become the standard, as these lowered wages become the standard. In addition, the practice of dismissing women as part of the fascist campaign to degrade women to being beasts of burden tied down to children, cooking, and the church with no opportunities for social and cultural advancement. It must be emphasized that 40% of all the women in industry are married women. They do not merely work to make pen money. The Women's Bureau of the Department of Labor admits that 90% of the married women who are in industry toil because they must supplement the meager earnings of their husbands and children. The fight for the right of working women to maintain their jobs is the fight of the entire working class. It is the duty of every employed and unemployed worker to join in this fight. Even before the Great Depression, the U.S. Department of Labor had pointed out in a 1928 report that the wages of women workers were one-half to one-fourth lower than those of male workers, that 60% of all women workers in industry received less than $14 a week, and that women workers were employed with so little concern for their safety that 15% of all cases that went before the Compensation Board in 1929 were initiated by women, a large number of whom were permanently disabled. More and more employers are unable or unwilling to meet the overhead expenses necessary in operating a factory and are giving the work out to be done in homes at shockingly low wages. Wages in factories for women were also sh shockingly low. A girl worker in a Philadelphia dress factory wrote in September 1931, Some weeks I can't make $5. Often on payday I've gotten in my envelope $3. Imagine for slaving all week. In Oakland, California, experienced women canners made 75 cents per a day for seven hours work, while less experienced women earned only 30 cents to 50 cents. In one Fall River mill, a female employer received only 54 cents an hour, while the highest paid women earned $1.54 for a total of $7.20 for a 48-hour week. In the summer of 1932, the Bryn Mawr Summer School for Women published women's workers in third year of the Depression reporting the experience of 109 working women from 17 states. Only 10 had experienced no unemployment at all during the past year. Their median wages were $480 a year, a drop from $861 a year in 1928. Welfare workers in New York City reported the following examples of wages in the city sweatshops. 1. A woman crocheted hats for 40 cents a dozen and was able to make only two dozen per week. 2. An apron girl paid $2.54 per apron earned $2.04 a day. 3. A slipper liner 
was paid 21 cents for 72 pairs of slippers she lined, and if she turned out one slipper every 45 seconds, she could earn a dollar and five cents in a nine-hour day. Four, a girl got half a cent for each pair of pants she threaded. Four, a girl got half a cent for each of pants she threaded and sponged, making $2.78 a week. Black women felt the impact of the Great Depression earliest and bore its burdens. Most of the employed black women on the eve of the Depression were still in domestic services or in the most menial occupations in shops and factories. In April 1931, 8% of black women in the North were unemployed versus 5% of the white women. In Cleveland, where one-sixth of the white women were jobless, more than Half the black women were unemployed. Please share this podcast with your family and friends. If you like our podcast, please rate us on iTunes. It helps others find us. If you would like to contact us, we have various ways to do so in our show notes, along with contact information for the National League of Justice and Security Professionals. Thank you for listening.